What traditions do you have? This time of year especially, uh, we start to think about some of the traditions uh, that we have as families and we start to engage in some of those traditions, be it Thanksgiving or Christmas, whether it's meals, what's going to be on the dinner table come Thanksgiving, what's going to be on the dinner table come uh, Christmas or Christmas Eve, what family we're going to see, family coming together, what songs are going to be playing when we're in those settings or just throughout the next couple months, what's going to be on the TV around Thanksgiving, maybe it's going to be football, maybe you're a Hallmark movie fan when it comes to Christmas time. Maybe it's Charlie Brown. We have traditions. And now that we're in November, we're, we've officially entered into Christmas season. Now, I know that's controversial, but at least that's the case in the Kane household. We are officially in Christmas season. And so the, we've purchased eggnog. We are watching Christmas movies. The decorations are up, and Christmas music is playing, and it's playing consistently. But here's the thing about traditions. Traditions, they're powerful. They convey value. They stir emotions. And they help us remember. And as we've gone through this book, this book of Exodus, what we've consistently seen is that God is trying to make himself known, not just to his people, but also to those around who are watching what's going on with this Exodus. And he wants them to remember who he is. He does not want them to soon forget what he has shown them. And so last week we looked at uh, what took place with the 10th plague being uh, struck against Egypt where the firstborn sons were killed. We saw that Israelites were spared, but they were spared not because of anything they did, but because God had provided a spotless lamb. We saw that Israel was released, and with them a mixed multitude went. And so some of the Egyptians in the land were spared because of the way God was revealing himself to Israel and to Egypt. And delivering Israel, some Egyptians said, I'm going to follow Yahweh rather than Egypt's gods. So a mixed multitude went out. And then God told them to make sure to keep this Passover. He gave them instructions about a Passover meal. He said, make sure you keep this Passover. And because it was a mixed multitude, God made clear instructions as to who could participate in the Passover and who could not. And essentially, he said that no uncircumcised person could participate made the point that only those who are of God's people may participate in the meal, remembering the rescue of God's people. And so if someone believed God's covenant promises, then they'd, then they'd receive God's covenant sign, they'd be brought into God's covenant people, and then they'd be welcome to come to the table to enjoy the ongoing covenant meal. And we drew parallels between that and the practice in the New Testament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But now this week, as we look at the text, we see God commanding his people to establish traditions, to remember and to recall his past faithfulness. He wants his past faithfulness to inform their present trust that he will continue to be faithful in the future. Because right now, Israel's kind of in that in-between. They've been brought out of the land of Egypt, but they haven't yet been delivered into the promised land. And so God is helping them establish traditions to say, hey, look, you're going to remember and you're going to recall my past faithfulness. And that should be a strong foundation to help you continue to trust me as I lead you in the wilderness. To put it in uh, one summary sentence you'll see there in your bulletin, we see that God was faithful to deliver his people in the past. Therefore, we can trust that he'll deliver us in the future. 
So because God was faithful to, to deliver his people in the past, we can have strong confidence that he will deliver us in the future. And so today we're looking at Exodus 13. And if you see your outline, you'll see two points. But we see that these traditions, the, the two traditions that we're going to read about, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn, they inform us of two things. These, this is your outline here. They inform us of God's past faithfulness and God's future faithfulness. God's past faithfulness and God's future faithfulness. So let's read Exodus 13. We're going to uh, start there in verse 1. And if you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, that's going to be on page 55. If you don't own a Bible, consider that blue one yours. But Exodus is going to be toward the beginning of the Bible. You see Genesis and then Exodus. Look for the big number 13, and that is where we're going to be starting. Let's read. This is God's perfect and infallible word. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of the man... Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time, when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped 
at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Father, as we look at your word, we pray that you would help us to understand what's happening here and that it would stir in us a greater confidence of your faithfulness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first point there, verses 1 through 16, we see God's past faithfulness. Now, immediate, immediately right out of the gate, we see this verse, verses 1 and 2, and it, makes, it begs the question, what's going on here with the firstborn? If you're, if you're someone who is from the West and you grew up in America, you're wondering what in the world is going on here. We don't see practices like this. So let's, just looking at that, God says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. And so the, the question that immediately pops up is, what does consecrate mean? What, what does that indicate? Well, the word consecrate means to set aside for sacred purposes. Okay. So why set aside the firstborn for sacred purposes? Well, there was some cultural significance to the firstborn that we should just be aware of. So the firstborn of the family, the firstborn male, was the principal heir of the family. He was the future head of his father's family. He was given a double portion of the inheritance. We see that in Deuteronomy 21. And he was given additional responsibility, additional authority, and he was given the highest rank of all the siblings. And so the importance of the firstborn here happens to be a consistent theme throughout the rest of Scripture. So understanding it is going to help us kind of have those lenses on to understand what else is going on in Scripture when we read about the firstborn, because this is an ongoing theme. So for instance, Israel was called the firstborn of God. You see that in Exodus 4. We've gone over that. David, Israel's greatest king later on, is called the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Jesus is known as the firstborn among many brothers, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, and as the firstborn of God. And interestingly, the church is called, in Hebrews 12, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And so all of these are indicating that the high position and the high authority and the high rank, in fact, John MacArthur points out that in all the above cases, firstborn clearly means highest in rank, not necessarily the first created. And so, when we look at this, we see that God's firstborn, Israel, was freed because God's judgment fell upon Egypt's firstborn. So if you zoom out here, when we're looking at this text, what we're going to see is we're going to see two firstborns. One experiences death, and the other goes free. Now, the freed son is only freed because he had a substitute, a spotless lamb, which we discussed last week. So that freedom that the freed son gets to experience was only made possible through judgment falling upon that substitute. It's not that that judgment didn't come to the freed firstborn, it's just that he had a substitute to take on that judgment. And so life was made available through death. And so now, every time when Israel enters the land, every time a firstborn male is born, be it man or beast, as the text says, the Israelites would essentially reenact the Passover. 
They'd be reminded that one goes free because the other dies. Like Israel and Egypt, the firstborns would either die or be set free. The firstborn animals, so you talk about the animals there, they're, they're kind of split into two categories, clean and unclean. So the firstborn animals that are clean, they would be sacrificed. Why? Because they're an acceptable sacrifice. The firstborn animals that were unclean, like the donkey, they weren't sacrificed, but rather a clean animal had to stand in its place and be sacrificed for it so it could be redeemed. And then all firstborn children were redeemed. None of them were sacrificed. They were all redeemed by a clean animal. And so every time a firstborn would be born in the land of Israel, and remember there's, there's about two million people so this is happening on a consistent basis. Every time, be it man or beast, that a firstborn was born, they would be reminded of the Passover, of the fact that this one goes free because a clean, spotless substitute had to die in its place. So what, what's the purpose here? So the, the, there are two sections in this first point. So we see in verses 3 through 10, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that tradition being established and God ensuring that they continue to do that. And then in verses 11 through 16, we see this further details about the consecration of the firstborn, the setting aside of the firstborn. Now, the purpose of these two traditions was so that Israel would never forget who God was and how they were freed. Four times in these passages, we see this phrase, by a strong hand, the Lord brought them out. See that four times in these 16 verses. And so it's, it's, it's a point that God wants to hammer home that, hey, all these things that I'm asking you to do are so that you would remember that it wasn't because you did something amazing that brought you out, but because the Lord, Yahweh, by his strong hand, delivered you. There'd be a full week of eating nothing but unleavened bread. Now remember, unleavened bread was made quicker than leavened bread, so eating unleavened bread for a full week reminded them of the hastiness that they had to get out of Egypt because God quickly delivered them. It also reminded them of the fresh start that they were going to have in that new land, that new life. And then the consecration of the firstborn meant that all these mini Passovers would be taking place all the time and that the sacrifice of a clean and spotless animal would provide the freedom for the unclean animal and the firstborn child. Which would remind the Israelites that they were spared death not because of how great they were but because a spotless lamb died in their place. And friends, even today, there's still no other way to be made right with God than having a spotless lamb stand in your place. There's no other way to avoid God's judgment. And by his grace and by his mercy, he has sent his son to serve as our clean and spotless lamb. And Jesus dying as our substitute, friends, is what makes our freedom possible. It's not because we've been such a great neighbor or because we're a faithful worker or because we give a certain amount to the church or because we never miss church or because we're leading a community, whatever, like you can list all the things, all the wonderful things. None of those things make you right with God. There are certainly evidences that you've been changed and that you now want to devote your life to God, but none of those things make you right with God. The only way you are made right with God is if a spotless lamb stands in your place and takes God's judgment against your sin and that has been freely offered through his son, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, what we see in chapter 13, emphasized twice, was also emphasized once in chapter 12. And that's namely that, that God wants these signs and symbols to have an evangelistic effect on the children. 
And so you see in verse 8 there, you shall tell your son on that day, it, the feast of unleavened bread, is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then verse 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this, the consecration of the firstborn, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And so like these traditions that God is establishing for Israel were to serve as kindling, were to serve as fodder to have more conversations with their children because their children, some of them were just too young to remember. Others were going to be born after the fact. And so when children are raising up and seeing, why do we, why do, we do these things? Dad, why do we do these things? Mom, it was to have those conversations so that so that the parents could point back to God's previous faithfulness, to God's past faithfulness, and say, we are only here, we are only out of bondage because God acted on our behalf. Because his strong hand took us out. And God was establishing these so that that good news would not just be isolated to the people who were in Egypt at that time, but would also affect the future generations for thousands of years to come. And so parents... Be diligent in communicating those truths to your children. Namely, that God is stronger than all other gods. He is the one true and living God. And two, that he alone saves by his strong hand. Remind your children that they can never live up to God's standard. That it is a good thing that God has sent a substitute we want to raise our children to be, to be good people. But we also don't want to put on them a yoke of slavery that makes them think that they have to earn their own salvation. Parents, your children's discipleship is your responsibility. So teach your kids that, that God loves them dearly. That he sent a greater lamb, his firstborn son, Jesus, to be a substitute. And that all who call on Jesus as their substitute will go free. And look, the ministries of the church, they're wonderful gifts to aid in that. We certainly don't want to downplay that. We, we want to be intentional in the way that we try to build up your children and teach them the gospel and point them to Christ. However, parents, you, not the church, are the primary disciplers of your children. And so don't outsource their discipleship to the church. Allow the church to come alongside what you are currently doing. As a family would encourage you to establish habits or traditions that point your kids to Christ. Simple things, not overly complicated things, simple things like, like attend church together, read together, pray together, sing together, memorize scripture together. Let your kids ask questions about why we do things, do the things that we do, why we do the things at church that we do, and, and use those questions as springboards to point them to Christ. You can only imagine some of the questions that might come up. Why do, we, why do we pray so much? Mom, Dad, why do we keep putting our heads down and closing our eyes? And why, why do we do that so much? Well, it's because we get to talk to God about all sorts of things. He invites us to thank him for who he is, to say sorry when we've fallen short of what he's commanded us, and to ask for forgiveness, and to be reminded that he has given that forgiveness. He, asks us to, he tells us to, to ask him for help and to say thank you for forgiving us and to say thank you for the way that he has helped us. Why do we sing so many songs, mom and dad? 
Well, it's because God tells us to sing together and to make a joyful noise to him. And because he loves us and because he saved us, we're very, very happy to sing to him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, when your heart is full of Christ, you want to sing. When your heart is full of Christ, you want to sing. Well, Mom, Dad, why does that man talk about the Bible for so long? Why does he get up there and bloviate for so long? Well, it's because we love God. And when you love someone, you want to know about them. You want to learn all you can about them. My wife would be offended if I told her that I am done learning about her. I love you, hon, but you know what? I think I know all that I need to know about you. And if any changes happen from here on out, like just I, I know what I need to know. She would not be thrilled about that. When you love somebody, you want to know about them. You want to continue to learn about them. And friends, we just, we, honestly, we just forget things easily. So we need to be reminded every week of the good news of the gospel, of who God is and what he has done for us. Kids might ask you, why do you eat that bread and drink that red stuff? Well, it's because it reminds us of Jesus taking our punishment on the cross so that we could go free. Every week we're reminded of that wonderful reality. So God wanted the Israelites to never forget where their salvation came from. So he established traditions for them to be reminded that God had fought for them, that God had overpowered Egypt, that God's judgment had broken Egypt's hold on Israel, and that God's substitute had spared Israel from that judgment. And so in every way, every step of that process, when the Israelites think about their salvation, every step of the way, they're reminded that it was God who was the one responsible for their freedom, not them. God wanted them to remember that. So Christian, be careful not to view your salvation as a result of your work. If you've been redeemed by Christ, it's because of what God has done for you, not because you were the smartest one in the room, not because you, you understood things better than the next guy, it's because the Lord kindly saved you and gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. And so our understanding of our salvation should lead us to great humility. Don't depend, don't view your salvation as a result of your work. But also consider, do you, do you celebrate God's past faithfulness in your life? You see all these traditions that the Israelites had. Do you have ways of being reminded of God's faithfulness in your life? An easy one is gathering with God's people. But what traditions do you have throughout the week to be reminded? Maybe it's just reading your Bible or praying. I mean, praying before a meal is an easy way to be reminded of God's kindness to provide you with food and also to be reminded that God has given you the greater food, the bread of life, Jesus Christ. You take time to reflect on God's goodness to you. And look, over the next couple of months, we have an opportunity to be really intentional with the way that we go about some of the things that go on in our culture with Thanksgiving and with Christmas. So use what's happening around you to redirect your focus to Christ. When it comes to Thanksgiving, be reminded of all the ways that God has provided for you and give thanks to him. This, the fact that we have an innate sense of needing to give thanks to something, we have a holiday around giving thanks. Giving thanks to what? We recognize that as Christians that we know who we're giving thanks to. Let's show the world what it looks like to give thanks the way that God has designed us to give thanks. If you're not a Christian, friend, don't depend on your strength and abilities to save you from God. We're going over the Beatitudes in our, in our community group 
And it's interesting how the Beatitudes just continue to build off one another from the first to the last. It just starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it's, it's interesting that none of the other Beatitudes are going to take place if you don't first come to that place of being poor in spirit, recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy, that you need the Lord, that you in and of yourself and your own abilities and your own resume cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize that their, their spiritual bankruptcy, for it's theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, look to the Lord, not yourself, to deliver you from sin's bondage. Because trusting in God's past work for salvation will enable you to trust his present work for your future good. Which leads us to the second point there, God's future faithfulness. <coughs> Excuse me. Now notice in, in verse 17 through 18, notice how the Lord leads Israel out of Egypt. Look, look with me there if you would. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So after departing Egypt, God could have taken, we're told right here, God could have taken them through the land of the Philistines. And Tony Marita commenting on this, he points out that that way, just geographically speaking, was the quickest way for Israel to leave Egypt. That would, have, that would have had them arriving in less than two weeks, as opposed to the 40 years that they wandered. That, through the land of the Philistines, that was the shortest way. That was the quickest way. But that wasn't the best way. See, God knew that if the Israelites saw the threat of war that quickly after coming out of Egypt, they would want to turn around. They'd change their minds and want to turn to Egypt. Because it's one thing to, to know that, okay, there I'm a slave and I have a hard life. It's one thing to think, okay, I have a hard life. And on the other hand, think, I have no life at all. So the threat of war is, hey, you know what? I'd rather have a hard life than have no life. And so he, God just knew his people. And he knew that if he, they, they saw the threat of war, that they would want to turn back. And so in his wisdom and in his mercy, God kept them from traveling that way. And it wasn't to be cruel to them, but it was to protect them. So rather than going the short route, God took them the long way. Friends, is it possible that God might be doing something similar in your life? That he's taking you the long way rather than the quickest way? Be it in your career or in your marriage, or children, or health, or understanding, or relationships, whatever it is, consider who else God did that with. Took them the long way rather than the shortest way. Consider Abraham, the father of nations. He was 100 years old before he ever received the child of promise. Consider Joseph, who was used by God to save thousands from plague and from famine. He was used by God to save thousands of lives in Egypt. But he spent 13 years in slavery and in prison prior to saving those lives. Consider Moses, who was used by God to lead God's people out of Egypt. He was 80 before God called him to do this. Prior to that, he had spent 40 years in the wilderness. 
Consider Israel, God's people who were promised the land of Canaan as their own. They wandered 40 years. That certainly is not the quickest way, but it was the best way. Consider David, who was told he would be king of Israel when he was a boy. So commentators will say that he was told when he was roughly between the ages of 10 and 15. But it wasn't until he was age 30 that he actually became the king of Israel. It was a 15 to 20 year wait. Consider Jesus, who is the Son of God incarnate, who knew that he was coming to save his people from their sin, that he'd be the Savior of humanity. He knew that before the foundations of the world. But he didn't begin his public ministry until he had been in the world for 30 years. Consider Paul, perhaps the greatest of the apostles, who, according to the Galatians, wasn't even, the, the book of Galatians wasn't even accepted by the apostles until 14 years after his conversion. And then consider the church, the bride of Christ. Us today. We've been promised that our groom, that Christ is returning, and we've been waiting for nearly 2,000 years for that return. Look, if you feel frustrated because things aren't happening as quickly as you would like or as you would have expected, let me just encourage you that you're in good company. Trust, friends, trust that the Lord is operating with more information than you, and he is operating for your ultimate good. If you are a Christian, you are promised that, that he is working for your good. Be reminded of Romans 11, when verse 33 through 34, Paul writes, Oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor. God is operating with much more information than you and I. And if you are in Christ, he is using each of these instances where it feels like it's taking longer than you would have expected to bring about your ultimate good in the same way that he did with his people taking them through the wilderness. As Tim Keller once put it, he said, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything God knows. God will either give us what we asked for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything God knows. And so like Joseph, who we just mentioned a little bit earlier, like Joseph, when we're unsure of what the future holds, let's rest in God's promises. Look with me if you would in verse 19. So this verse is kind of put in here and it can feel kind of disjointed. You're reading, and then you're just told that, okay, they also took Joseph's bones. But let's read that verse. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, this is a reference to Genesis 50. So if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, just, just back, it's going to be a few pages to your left. But Genesis 50, verse 24, we read, And Joseph said to his brothers, brothers who had betrayed him, he says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. So look, right, right before Joseph died, he told his brothers that God would visit them to deliver them up from the land of Egypt into the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before him. And so Joseph's confidence in God's faithfulness led him to tell his brothers, hey, it's going to happen. 
This, this time in Egypt is just, just kind of a parenthesis, but God is going to deliver us that land that he promised. And when he does, take me with you. Take my bones with you. I'm about to die. I'm about to go into rest. I can rest knowing that God is going to fulfill his word. And when he does, take my bones with you. Joseph's confidence in God's faithfulness enabled him to find true rest while he was in Egypt. Friends, we too must be confident in God's promises. As you read your Bible, an important thing to do is just to make a habit of identifying some of the promises that you read. Some of the promises that you can rest in. Joseph rested in God's promise. As you read your Bible, it's, it's full of promises from God. As you're reading, just kind of have your radar on for, for when some of those promises pop up and consider how you can rest in them. Meditate on those promises. Memorize them. Discuss them with a friend over lunch, sometime during the week or over coffee. Ask others what promises have been helpful for them. As you do that, you'll find yourself more and more willing to trust the Lord's guidance. So let's look at those last few verses there. In verses 20 through 22, what we see, just as a summary, is that Israel moved through the land, but the Lord was going before them. And he went before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now there's three things for us to see about God's guidance here. At least three things. You could probably pull out more, but there's at least three things that we can see here. The first is that he's trustworthy. Verse 21, we see that he led Israel along the way. Proverbs 14 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The Psalm 16, verse 11, says that you make known to me the path of life. We're all going one way or the other. And the way that we tend to think is the right way is oftentimes going to lead to our own destruction. But God makes known to us the way that leads to life, the path of life. And in verse 21, we see that he gave Israel light. And look, apart from God, Israel would have been lost in darkness. But with God, they're given eyes that see. They're able to see the path and they're able to follow it with confidence. They can go forward in confidence because God has provided light for them to see and for them to walk in. God is trustworthy. The second thing that we see about God's uh, leadership here is that it's caring. Now look, don't forget, it's easy to forget that as, as they go through the wilderness, it's easy to forget that the, the wilderness, the desert, is a place of extreme temperatures. And so during the day, it would be extremely hot, but at nighttime, it would be extremely cold. And so notice what God provided for them. During the day, a pillar of cloud. So they could travel in this blazing hot desert in shade. The Lord is caring. And then consider at night, when it gets very cold, a pillar of fire. Not only does it provide light for them to see, but it provides warmth. Our God is a caring God. Just as the Lord provided for his people in Egypt, like a good father, he continues to care for his people in the wilderness. He doesn't leave them or forsake them. and gives them exactly what they need. But the third thing, so we see that God's leadership here, his guidance of them, is trustworthy. We see that it's caring. We also see that it's faithful. Verse 22, we see that God's presence did not depart from before the people. He never, not even for a moment, forgot them. There was always a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so, Christian, if you're here and you're hurting, do you trust that the Lord is still leading you for your good in the midst of your pain? 
Are you trusting that the way the Lord is leading is for your ultimate good? Consider what God has done for his people in the past, what he's done for you in the past, and let that, allow that to inform your present trust that he will continue to take care of you in the future. God's past faithfulness with the Exodus had informed Israel's trust in his future faithfulness. And like Israel, friends, today, if you're a Christian, we are living in the in-between. We've been delivered from our sin, from our bondage, from the slavery, the yoke of sin, and we've been, we're waiting in, in, in between for that promised land that God has promised to all those who are in him. He has already delivered us, but we're not yet in that land where we'll spend eternity with our Savior. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, For we have, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, we are in the in-between. Let God's past faithfulness inform your trust to continue to lead you into the future. Seek that city that is to come, because God has made known to us the path of life. He's done it by sending us his Son who is the way. And look, all of us were lost in darkness, eternally separated from God because of our sin, but God sent his son, who's the light of the world, like a pillar of fire. He sent his son, who's the light of the world, to lead us and to make known to us the path of life. Are you trusting that promise? That Christ is the one who leads you back to life found in the Father. If you are, then, friends, you have another promise that you get to enjoy. And that's that God's presence is not only among you, like he was with the Israelites, pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire among them. God's presence is not only among you, but it's now inside of you. Because he has sent his spirit to dwell inside of you. So we are in a better place than the Israelites. It's easy to look at the Israelites and say, man, it would be easy to follow God if a pillar of fire was leading me. It'd be easy to follow God if a pillar of cloud was just directing every one of my steps. But friends, we are actually, I know it's difficult to to fully embrace, and and I feel that tension, but we really are. We are in a better place than Israel because God's spirit is inside of us, not just among us. You can trust that God has promised. You can trust this promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. So no matter what you're going through, If God has delivered you from your sin in the past, you can trust that he'll continue to work on your behalf to ensure that you're delivered safely to that heavenly land that he's promised for his people. Getting ready to sing a really beautiful hymn, uh, And Can It Be? And the fourth verse just encapsulates this. You can turn over in your bulletin, you'll see it. But the fourth verse there, encapsulates this text well. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, God was faithful to deliver his people in the past. Therefore, we can trust that all who call on him will be delivered in the future. Do not be afraid to follow him. Remind yourself of how he's delivered you in the past. Set up traditions and and patterns and habits in your life to remind yourself and entrust your future to him knowing with utmost confidence that he is working for your good in the same way that he was 
for his people as he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. Let's pray. Father, we confess our love for you and we are so thankful that you, in your goodness and in your kindness, have sent your son. Lord, that he is the way, that he is the light of the world. Help us to walk in the light and help us to trust you to continue to guide us and to deliver us, not only now, but also in the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.